Well, you know it's Christmas season, right? Well, it depends when that starts. For my wife, it starts in October. And then uh, others, you know, it's all year long. Uh, but uh, it, it is that time of year. That there's a lot of focus around the birth of Christ and Him coming into the world. And uh, I, I want to preach a series of messages that are uh, surrounding this topic. And uh, the title of the series is going to be Changed Lives at Christ's Advent. And so this series is going to focus in and look at uh, the people that were impacted in that general time uh, with all that comes about with Christ's arrival. And uh, this is going to be something we'll do throughout the whole month of December. It'll include uh, Sundays as well. So we're going to just take a break from Ephesians until January, and we're going to look at this together. Uh, throughout this month, and I pray to be a blessing to us. Uh, but tonight we're going to begin in Luke chapter number 1. We're going to start with uh, looking at two people and how their lives were impacted by the coming of Christ, by His arrival into the world, or His soon-to-be arrival. And uh, the title of the message is, The Silence is Broken. And uh, you'll see why, why that's titled that way in just a moment. But our text is going to be Luke 1 and verse 5 down through verse 25. So let's read the text and then we'll uh, look at it together and uh, look at these two people that are uh, impacted with Christ's arrival, his advent. Notice in Luke 1, 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years." And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, "Thus, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. 
So when we think about the birth of Christ, his advent, his coming obviously has changed countless lives, hasn't it? The coming of Christ in the world with his incarnation, it has changed my life. If you're a believer, it has changed your life, and uh, it continues to change lives throughout the world. But have we ever thought about maybe the direct impact of his arrival on those who were physically alive at that time, how his arrival and all that surrounds that impacted them at that particular time? I think that's something interesting to kind of think about as you look at the scriptures and uh, maybe put yourself in their shoes and Imagine experiencing some of the things that they had experienced. Today we're going to look at two people that were changed and privileged by the coming of Christ into the world, and we don't hear a whole lot about these two people. It's Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, We most commonly hear about this time of year, we hear about Mary and Joseph, maybe the Magi and uh, the shepherds, and we're going to look at them too. Uh, But there's some more obscure people here too that I, I think are worth noting and looking at. Uh, These two people were changed and impacted just like the rest. How is that? Well, when the time came for Jesus to enter the world, the silence was broken. say, well, what silence are you talking about? Well, up to this point, there was roughly a period about 400 years where there was no word from God. There was no prophet raised up. There was no inspired scripture Uh, So it's commonly called the silent years. Now, there's a lot of things taking place in history, uh, but for over 400 years, uh, separating the events where Israel, the Jews, had come back to their land, so you could look at the events of Nehemiah, as well as the final prophecy of Malachi, which is the last book of your Old Testament, up to the point here where we see the events happening in Luke, it's been about 400 years, but we're known as the silent years. So from the time the Jews came back from Jerusalem and those last prophecies given to Luke's opening events, no prophet was raised up, no inspired scripture was given. But even though God's voice was silent, his hand was very much active. And that's a principle for us to remember because uh, even when God is silent, his hand is active. We know that he's given us his word and his word was very much alive and well. And what you find throughout that period happening is that all the prophecies of Daniel were coming to pass just as Daniel had foretold them with the kingdoms that would rise. You had Babylon and Persia and then uh, ultimately come on down to Rome. And so these kingdoms were rising and falling and all of this was according to God's redemptive plan which would ultimately come to the Messiah's kingdom. And so when you read Daniel's prophecies, what do you find? You come down to the very bottom of that statue, which is the Roman Empire, and then there's a stone, which is pictured in that text, and it destroys it, right? And so the kingdom of Messiah would arrive. Uh, And so the the last kingdom in that list, what we find was Rome. And that's that's the power at time in the New Testament when the days of Christ, when Christ was alive and the days of John the Baptist and all that we see here. So we see the silence here is broken. God begins to speak to his people again. It's broken for them nationally, but it's also broken in another way for the personal life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You see, they were childless. They were getting up in age. They were already beyond childbearing years, as verse 7 and others indicate. They had prayed for children in their lifetime, but there was no answer, no answer from God. And now the silence we can see is actually broken in a twofold way. One spiritually by God speaking to his people again, but also one in a very personal way for Zechariah 
and Elizabeth. And that is all because, all of this happens because of one thing. The arrival of Christ is here. The arrival of Christ has arrived. Uh, And so we're going to look at the change Christ's advent brought to Zechariah and Elizabeth in this message, and we'll look at others as we go throughout December. But notice with me, number one, our notes tonight. We look at the proclamation given to Zechariah. The proclamation given to Zechariah. The majority of what we look at will probably come from Zechariah because that's the large portion of Scripture that's given to us, but we'll look at some others as well. But I want to point out just a few things about him. Notice, firstly, that Zechariah, he has a blessed description about him. I mean, he has a great testimony by the Spirit of God here in the Scriptures. But we notice that, 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 that Luke here, that the goal of his gospel is to give us an account of the gospel of Christ in an orderly fashion. So I think that Luke's, uh, Luke is very detailed. He's very chronological in the way he thinks. Uh, he also wrote the book of Acts, which connects with the book of Luke. Uh, but notice that Scripture tells us the time setting, that it's in the days of Herod the king of Judah. So that would have been Herod the Great. Uh, that shows us that Rome, Rome is in power at this time. Uh, they ruled over a large region of the world at that time in that general area, uh, including Israel. And so Scripture gives us that background, but it also gives us information about the two people that we're looking at here today. The large portion of this text deals with Zechariah, but notice, notice what he is. Who was this man? He was a priest. He was a priest. Now, what did Jewish priests do? They served in the temple, didn't they? They're the ones that conducted worship, that went in, they, uh, they, they, they offered sacrifices, and as we see in this text, he's ministering at the altar of incense. They would go into the temple. They would conduct all of these sorts of things, and so this is happening all in what we would call the second temple era. Now, there was a first temple era, which was built by who? Solomon, right? What happened to that temple? It was destroyed by Babylon, and that takes us into the Daniel prophecies and uh, how all that thing comes to comes to pass. But the second temple era uh, pretty much spans from uh, from 516 BC to the destruction of the temple in uh, AD 70 with the Romans. So at this time, the Jews have a regular form of worship. They're going about regular worship there in the temple, and they were following the division of service for the priests that were set in place by King David. Now, if you go back to First Chronicles chapter number 24 and verse 1 through 10 you'll find that to provide service for the temple, the priests were divided into 24 divisions, each of which served for a week twice a year. And so that's why Luke says that Zechariah here, he's serving in his course of Abijah. If I'm pronouncing that right, I don't know if I am or not, but uh, that's the time frame that he's serving in. So he's faithfully serving the Lord, fulfilling his duties in the temple, And his wife also was a faithful woman of the Lord. She comes from the line of Aaron. But notice that Luke gives us a detailed description about them. Look at verse 6. Notice that Luke says both, not just one, but both of them. Both Both of these people, this couple, this married couple, both of them were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now that's significant, I think. Why? Well, because most religious people, like the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, what were they? They were hypocrites, right? 
They were ones that wanted to appear righteous outwardly, but they weren't really righteous before God. And so that's really what categorizes any religious leadership in the days of John the Baptist and Jesus in this era of time. Uh, the religious leadership had become very much uh, politicized and very man-centered. Uh, and, and so John the Baptist will read later, him and Jesus would battle with the religious leaders of that day because they were unrighteous in their ways. Uh, John the Baptist later would preach to them as they came to his baptism in Matthew 3, 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath, of, wrath to come? I mean, that's, that's what it was for the religious leaders of that day. But Zacharias and, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're different. They're not like all the other religious leaders. These two, notice what it says, were righteous before who? God, right? Everybody else wanted to be righteous before men, but they were righteous before God. You see, this is the Lord's own description of them. Now, this doesn't mean they were perfect or sinless, but that they were righteous before him by grace, and that righteousness was reflected in the life they lived. They were obedient to his word and genuinely lived it out in their lives. So their faithfulness speaks volumes to me. Why is that? Well, think about this. How easy would it, for, would it have been if you, living in that day and time, to have thought that God had forsaken you, and why should you just continue following his law? He's not spoken to your people for over 400 years. Your people are under the thumb of Roman rule. It would be easy just to say, I'm done. I'm just going to forget this. I'll just live how I want. But what do we find with them? We find that instead, they are walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They're being faithful to the word of God, even though God has been silent, even though their circumstance is not exactly what they would like it to be. And friend, that's a, Christ, that's a Christian principle for all of us, is that we walk by faith, not by sight, right? Our obedience to God doesn't depend on our circumstance. It doesn't depend on if we feel God's answering our prayer like we, we want him to. Our obedience to him is by faith and always rooted in the word of God. So while they are being faithful, while they are serving, while they're walking with him, what do we find happen? The silence is broken between God and his people. So what happens with Zechariah? Notice with me letter B, we see Zechariah received a miraculous revelation here. A miraculous revelation. You look at verse 8 through 10 for a moment. The Bible says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the temple were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, let's pause there for a moment. You notice that Zechariah is chosen by lot to be the one who goes into the temple to perform this uh, burn incense at the, at the altar of incense. Do we think that it's a coincidence that the lot fell upon Zechariah at that particular time that it was his turn to go in there? Not a chance, friend. Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. You know what we find here? We find sovereign providence governing the very minute details of this event. And did you know that he sovereignly governs all the minute details of everything in our life? You know what that means? When you're playing games and you lose, you just have to take it as providential. I don't like doing that all the time. And you dominoes players, I know you're looking at each other. 
But sometimes I remind myself of that because I get pretty heated in a game that I'm losing. Uh, but I have to remember, this is God's will, and I'm going to be happy about it. Bethany doesn't like that because she's having a hard time beating me at Monopoly. And I just have to remember that, just trust the Lord. <laughs> it's okay. Put a smile on your face. But in God's providence, he had Zechariah perform this duty at this particular time for a glorious purpose. This would be the beginning of the silence being broken, which would lead to the coming Savior into the world. Now, let's look at this together. Look at while Zechariah is performing his duties, you come down to verse 11, and notice what it says. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, just pause there. How would you respond if you're in this dimly lit room Suddenly, and, and suddenly an angel shows up, and he's just standing there looking at you. I mean, it wasn't bright like this. I mean, they had the menorah, which lit the room sufficiently, but it's not like they got these nice LED lights. I mean, he's, he's, it's kind of, a, kind of a dim room. And what do we see with Zechariah? Verse 12, he was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, I think he had the response that many, any of us would have had, right? Have you ever had somebody sneak up on you and you didn't realize they were there? Once you realized they were there, it startled you? Our kids are good at that, especially early in the morning and late at night when everybody's supposed to be asleep. You hear the door creak open and you just see a little shadow standing there and it, you're awake at that point. It startles you. Now, it's one thing to be startled by another person, but imagine an angel appearing to you. Now, we don't know what, this, what Gabriel looked like, but there's some angelic descriptions that are quite scary. <laughs> if you look at them... They're, they're, they're not like normal appearances, okay? But I, I imagine Gabriel probably appeared, uh, as many of the others do, just in a, uh, in a regular form with um, a head and eyes and legs. You know, you know, we don't know. But regardless, what do we find with him? He, he, with, he, 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 he wasn't expecting to see an angel. He's never seen an angel. He certainly wasn't expecting any announced visitors from God. The Jews had, had, had believed that, God had not spoke for this period of 400 years. He hadn't been active since, since Malachi uh, as far as giving a, an, an utterance or a revelation from God. And now God's visiting his people again through this angel. Now, notice that the angel comforts him at verse 13. And you notice this is always how it goes. I mean, uh, when God appears through an angel and the angel appears, it's always, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Be, fear not, fear not. So verse 13, that's what he says. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So what we learn from that, we learn that this evidently was their prayer earlier in their life. Lord, please give us a child. Lord, please give us a child. They had had no child, as verse 7 tells us. She was barren, and now they're advanced in years. They are beyond the childbearing age. But as we know from Scripture, that's no obstacle for the Lord. We've seen him overcome that many times. But what astounding news this must have been for them. They didn't even have to pick out a name. The angel says, you're going to call his name John. Now, picking out a name can sometimes be a tedious task. A lot of, a lot of fights over the name. When Bethany suggested we're going to call our son Spurgeon, I wasn't going to fight with that one. <laughs> I'm all in favor. Just know they're all going to think I'm the one who instigated that. So I was, that, that was an easy one. But here you got the angel says, you're going to name him John. 
Not only does the angel tell them the news of a son and his name, but he reveals that this son would be uniquely special and be called by the Lord for a divine purpose. Now look at verse 14 through 17, and we see what that purpose is. He says, You will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, you notice he he says, you'll have joy and gladness, and many are going to rejoice at his birth. Well, that's kind of a given any time a baby's born, right? It's a joyous, joyous occasion. But that joy would be not just because a baby's born, but there's a more deeply rooted joy in this baby being born. This baby would be the mark, would mark the beginning of God's long-awaited promises being fulfilled. He would be the prophet of the Most High God, and he would be great before the Lord. Jesus later speaks of John the Baptist and his greatness in Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says of him, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen, no, there's, has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he recognizes the greatness of his ministry, his purpose. And as this prophet, his life would be uniquely set apart for God. Gabriel says he must not drink wine or strong drink. That indicates his life would be akin to those who took the Nazarite vow. In, uh, back in the Old Testament of Numbers 6, 1 through 3. So uh, he has a specific calling uh, and separation upon him. Notice also that the angel says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That troubles a lot of people. But you know what that displays? It displays God's sovereignty over both John's salvation and his service. And his service. He would be fully equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to fulfill this ministry. Much like the Apostle Paul, who also said a similar thing. Galatians 1, 15 through 16. Remember the words of Paul? Paul said this, When he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The same could be said for the prophet Jeremiah. What did he say in Jeremiah 1? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and ordained you to be a prophet. So John the Baptist has this kind of a calling on his life. And what would this calling accomplish? Verse 16, he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Because many of them have forsaken the Lord their God. But notice especially verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, in order for this purpose to make ready a people for the Lord, to prepare them. So what you find with this is that John the Baptist would be for the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of the man who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. One of the great prophecies that indicates this. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The voice in the wilderness we find is John the Baptist. He would come as the prophet Elijah of old. 
Now go with me backwards to Malachi. Let's just go to the last book of the Old Testament. If you find Matthew, go back one book and you'll find it. Look at Malachi 3 and verse 1, and also you look at chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Notice that Malachi prophesies this, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Speaks of John the Baptist. He's the messenger. Then you see in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, these prophecies are about this man, John the Baptist. And Jesus pronounces that this John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Elijah who is prophesied to come. Matthew seventeen twelve. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So Jesus makes the connection of what the Old Testament's talking about. So we have to understand that, that the New Testament is what unlocks the Old Testament. It's what helps us understand what prophecies meant. And so Jesus says, he is the Elijah to come. Now, a lot of Jews, they're still looking for Elijah to come. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, what they say? He, they say, he's crying for Elijah. Well, let's see if he'll come. They're all, they're all superstitious about all this. But literally, they realize that that prophecy is about John the Baptist. It's already happened. And so here's the great connection for all of this that I see. The last word of God written in the Old Testament is the prophecy concerning John the Baptist, and the very next word from God is about John the Baptist arriving over 400 years later. That's a miraculous thing. I love the connection you see there that Zechariah received. But how's he going to respond to this? Well, let us see. We see Zechariah experiences a temporary chastisement. A temporary chastisement. You say, well, why? Here he is receiving this great news, but he's going to be punished? Well, look at this. After getting this awesome news, Zechariah has a response that he would regret, I'm sure. But I can't say that I wouldn't have had the same response. My own humanity. Verse 18. Zechariah said this to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So he's right off the bat with everything he's been told. This is physically not possible. How can this be? How can this be? Well, he expresses doubt about that word because of his age, much like others in times past, and it does seem that God gives him a chastisement that maybe he didn't give to certain others who had the same kind of doubt. God has the right to do that. There was a purpose for this. But when God says something, that it will come to pass. All right, When God says something will come to pass that looks impossible, man's initial response sometimes is to doubt, isn't it? We're very dependent on what we think is possible in our own reasoning. That's what Zechariah did. And because of his doubt in Gabriel's message, the word of God, Zechariah was given a punishment that would have been somewhat hard to bear. It's a punishment that's going to last at least nine months, the whole time of the pregnancy, all the way to the birth. Look at, look at verse 19 and 20. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So it's almost like that statement right there is a declaration. You should have believed this because of exactly who he is and what he has said. Then you come to verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. That's the reason. You did not believe my words, which would be fulfilled in their time. So let's think about all this for a moment. Zechariah has seen the archangel Gabriel, was told his barren wife would have a son. This son would be the forerunner of the Messiah. God promised long ago that the Jews have been looking for for hundreds of years, expecting for hundreds of years. And Zechariah can't even tell anybody about it with his own voice. Now, certainly he could have pinned it down, but he can't speak it. Now, if I had had something like this come to me, I would be urging to speak it, right? I mean, I, would, I couldn't wait to tell what just happened. Hey, get on to David because he knows where Jubilee's Christmas presents are. And we specifically told him, do not go in this room. Well, not a day later, he's trying to take Jubilee in here. Come look at what's in mom's closet. He can't hold it in. But if, if, if any of us got something like this, we wouldn't be able to hold it in. We'd be able to tell somebody, want to speak it, shout it from the mountaintop, right? Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. So we look at his reaction, verse 21, down through verse 22. Notice what happens. The people were waiting for Zechariah as they wondered at his delay in the temple. So he's been in there more than time he should have been. And then he came out. He was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. So he's trying to communicate with his hands and with his actions, but he can't get it across. You ever played the, played the game charades? The game of charades? I hate that game. Because if I got something I'm trying to communicate, I don't do well without using words. You're trying to communicate something and you can't talk and the others are trying to guess, you know, what it is. I'm just not very good at it. So usually if I'm not good at it, I try to sabotage and make other people lose. That's how I go. So don't invite me to play that game. I'll play it, but at your own risk. It's hard to communicate without words. He can't go home and verbally tell his wife that she's going to have a child in her old age. Well, he could do is probably write it down. So in one sense, the silence continued for Zechariah physically. But it was broken for them spiritually and in a very great way with the Messiah arriving. That brings us to Elizabeth. Notice within number two, the pregnancy of Elizabeth. The pregnancy of Elizabeth. And we notice that she received a wonderful, wonderful surprise here. Wonderful surprise. In verse 23, Zechariah went home after that service was, time of service ended. And we read in verse 24, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Can you imagine how surprised she is that this has come to pass and she is now pregnant? She's carrying a child. I'll never forget when we found out Bethany was pregnant with Jubilee, our first child. We both weren't really expecting it. And she took a test and she was like, <gasps> honey, she showed me the pregnancy test. I thought, that thing ain't right. <laughs> We're going to triple check this. We go down to the health department. It's legit. We were surprised, but that was a wonderful surprise, a precious jubilee. 
Imagine them getting that news when they are both well advanced in years beyond childbearing years. This simply reveals the miraculous power of God that nothing is impossible with him at all. He accomplishes his purposes, just like he told Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So you come to verse 25, and she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You see, in that day and time, not being able to have children was a major reproach among the people. Many women dealt with that. We think of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Samson's mother and, and Hannah, uh, who experienced all that trouble. But the Lord had shown her great mercy in choosing her to be the mother of the forerunner of the Messiah. So how does Elizabeth view all this? How does all of this play together even for, uh, for, for Zechariah? Here's how it's viewed. It's an answer to their prayer earlier in their life. Earlier, Gabriel told Zechariah their prayer had been answered. That made me think. Do you think in their old age beyond childbearing years that they are still praying for a child? I don't think so. I don't think so. Once you pass childbearing years, you don't continue to pray for children. But that prayer long ago when they desired children and they were able to have children, long ago, God answered that prayer. That teaches us something. Sometimes the Lord answers our prayers long after we've prayed it. He might even answer your prayer long after you're dead. You may pray for your children to be saved all your life, and you die never having known they got saved. The Lord still might save them after you're already in heaven. The same for other requests you might bring before him. So this teaches us don't, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Believe in his power of, uh, to answer prayer according to his will. Never give up praying. So Elizabeth and Zechariah are finally going to have a child after all these years. But her joy is only going to increase as time goes on. Notice with me letter B. We see that she received a wonderful salutation. A wonderful salutation as, she comes, as Mary comes to visit her. During the pregnancy of Elizabeth, Mary received her news about Jesus coming through her womb. And so Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and tells her all these things. Look at chapter 1 and look at verse 39. Come, come down with me. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We think about this reality. You notice what happens with Elizabeth. She's six months pregnant. Mary arrives. And when Mary arrives and greets them, the Bible says the baby leaped in her womb. And you mothers who have carried children, you know what that feels like. Babies kicking around and getting up in your ribs. But this is significant. Something sparked him to leap in her womb. 
Well, what sparked that? It was the presence of Jesus. Because Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb. What a description this is, and a foreshadow, really, of John the Baptist's connection with Jesus. It's as if John the Baptist, as a baby in the womb leaping, is already announcing the presence of the Messiah in Mary's womb. So so the news of Jesus brought excitement. Still brings excitement to us today, doesn't it? At least it should. You see, the salutation from Mary here brought great joy and blessing to Elizabeth. Notice what Elizabeth recognizes about the child Mary's carrying. In verse 42 and 43, she says to Mary, she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Mother of my Lord. She recognizes that Mary's baby in her womb is indeed the Messiah that God promised to send long ago, that all of the Old Testament scriptures are saturated with prophecies about, all the way to the very first one in Genesis 3.15. You remember what that prophecy signifies or teaches? God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right there is a subtle hint to the virgin's conception and birth. Messiah would come through her offspring, not his, but her. So Elizabeth recognizes the divine nature of the baby Mary's carrying and knows, and, and knows that John leaped in her womb for joy because of Jesus. I can't help but imagine how exciting this all must be for her. So notice how this changes their life. We've, we, we touch on it, we see it all through this text and all that we're looking at. But let's just just consider just two simple things here. The privilege for them both, number three. The privilege for them both, all because of the arrival of Christ. Number one is this, it's very simple. They get to have a special child. They get to have a special child. Now, Elizabeth is experiencing something she never thought she was was ever going to experience. Bearing a child, having a child. And why is it that she gets to have this experience? It's all because of the birth of Christ. It's all because of the advent of Christ. They get to actually experience having their own child, and it comes to fruition. Luke 1, look, go, look with me at Luke 1, go backwards or further on in the chapter. We're concluding their story. Look at verse 57 forward. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy at her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. They all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and spoke blessing God and Fear came on all the neighbors and all the things that were talked about. All these things were talked about through, through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This little baby that is going to be called John, later known as John the Baptist. I like that title. Elizabeth makes clear that his name would be John, which came across as odd to them because usually you named your children after a relative. They didn't have anybody in their family. 
by that name. She's following the orders that from Gabriel, which must have been written down for her by Zechariah. And even Zechariah confirms this when he writes on the tablet, his name is John. I think it's interesting to note, too, that it appears that Zechariah may not only have been mute, but also deaf, too. Why? Well, because they're making signs to him, inquiring what they, he wanted him to be called. If he could hear, he could have just heard, right? He could have just spoken. Possible. If he could hear, they would have had to make signs. This is confirmed by the people's amazement, too, that they're amazed that he writes down the same name. If he could have heard, it would have been easy to say he's John because he would have heard Elizabeth say that. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah confirmed the baby's name is John, just as Gabriel told them. And immediately after Zechariah wrote his name down, his mouth was opened back up. He could speak as well as hear. And what they once prayed for long ago is now reality. They have a son, and it is all because of the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. This special son. Not only did they just have a son, but let her be, they get to raise the Savior's prophet. He's a special kind of son. He's unique. Zechariah gives words of praise and truth about his son in Luke 1. Let me read his prophecy and then we'll be done. His father, verse 67, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to the fathers, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What an amazing prophecy that is. We don't have time to expound it all, but just in summary, we see the blessedness of God for redeeming his people and bringing about salvation. We see the fulfillment of prophecy through the house of David. We see God's remembrance of his covenant with his people, that God's people would be saved from their enemies. We see God's actions will create the ability for his people to live holy and righteous lives, serving him without fear. We notice verse 40, 76, what's been the thread through this, that he would be the prophet of the Most High. And that same prophet later, as in his ministry, would proclaim as Jesus, comes on the scene, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that proclamation from John the Baptist continues today as we preach Christ crucified and risen. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Zechariah knew that the birth of his own son was, the, was because of the arrival of God's son. And their lives would change forever. In verse 80, we notice that 
the child grew, speaking of John the Baptist, and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Now, many believe that John was partially raised by a religious sect in, uh, called the Essenes, dwelling in the desert area of Qumran. Say, why do they think that? Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're not mentioned anymore after this point. And they most likely only got to raise John the Baptist to a certain point because they were old in their years. They were elderly. They were nearing the end of their life. But with what time they had, their lives were changed. They became parents of the prophet of the highest. They lived at the time when Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, was born. And they were believers in that Savior. Changed forever by that. So in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, what do we find? The silence was broken. God spoke after 400 years of silence and used them to bring John the Baptist into the world to be the forerunner of Christ the Messiah. And we think about them and see how their lives were changed. We know that Christ's birth, his advent, it still changes people's lives. It's been changing people's lives for nearly 2,000 years. And it's going to continue to change lives until he comes. So maybe ponder how his life has changed you. Ponder how his coming and his arrival has changed you. And I think as we come through this season, it's a good thing that we rejoice in the advent of Jesus and how he has changed our lives.